Hello, I'm Jason DeRosso and this is The Screen Show, your weekly appointment with TV and film reviews and discussion here on RN. Coming up, our resident TV critic Lauren Carroll Harris is speaking to the co-creators of Pen15 about their awkward high school comedy and uh, how they're playing their teenage selves at 30-something. But first to a film that audiences have been waiting for for three decades and an interview with its director, Terry Gilliam. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is uh, one of the most disaster-plague films of all times. If you haven't seen the alarming behind-the-scenes documentary Lost in La Mancha about the last time that Gilliam tried and failed to make this movie, I highly recommend it. The film has outlived at least two different choices for the lead role, John Hurt and Jean Rochefort, and fallen foul of a litany of disasters from unscrupulous producers, extreme weather events, and even NATO bombing exercises. But now it is finally here on screens in Australia, having premiered at last year's Cannes Film Festival, starring Adam Driver as a jaded commercials director named Toby, who is facing a creative block on the Spanish set of an expensive vodka commercial. To clear his head, he hops on a motorcycle and goes wandering through the Spanish countryside to the small town where years earlier as a film student, he tried to shoot a version of Don Quixote using a local shoemaker for the lead role. He discovers that man again, finds that he has come to completely believe he is Don Quixote, and soon the line between fantasy and reality becomes completely blurred. Alive. Look, maybe we should just go back and face a few ugly realities. You can explain everything to the authorities. Explain? You think explaining explains anything? Well... Yes. You have a simple view of life, Sancho. Very touching. Yeah, and you're really Don Quixote. You doubt it? <laughs> Look, do you remember years ago, about ten years ago, I was making a film? You were just an old man, I found. I was lost. Forgotten. Yeah, right, but then I found you, and I thought, this guy has an interesting face. It's the kind of face I'd use now to sell insurance. I owe you a great debt, Sancho. You're restored to me. You really don't remember. Don Quixote de la Mancha, the knight of the mournful countenance, come to restore the lost age of chivalry by a special will of heaven. Now, Terry Gilliam is, of course, no stranger to films about dreamers or films that seem like dreams. He began his career as a cartoonist before joining Monty Python as the only American-born member and went on to carve out a career in film, often exploring themes of paranoia and state oppression with a highly expressive and sometimes surreal style. Movies like Brazil, Twelve Monkeys, The Fisher King and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is as you'd expect, an exuberantly unhinged movie parable, whereby the delusion of the Quixote character, who's played by a dottery, aristocratic, and sometimes laughably smug Jonathan Price, infects the whole film. And an increasingly exasperated Toby is drawn in to this imaginary world as Quixote's offsider, Sancho Panza. We're suddenly in a kind of medieval Spain where contemporary allegory is not far beneath the surface and is signalled, in fact, by various present-day elements like black-suited security guards talking into their radios alongside regal characters in full-period costume. Gilliam embeds into the movie a theme of moral panic around Muslim refugees and a very pointed critique of the way that the film industry chews some people up and spits them out. He's less successful threading a love story into the mix and his politics are sometimes preachy and when it comes to women... I'd say even a little patronising, if well-meaning. He has two major roles for feisty women played by Olda Kurilenko and Joanna Ribeiro. Visually, the film is typical Gilliam, teeming with ideas like a Baroque sculpture with different elements, including mountains, Spanish horizons, medieval architecture, intricate costumes, all competing for your attention. The absurd, rollicking adventure itself, though, doesn't always sustain. For Gilliam fans, though, I think it is a must-see. Terry Gilliam coming up. Well, Terry Gilliam, welcome to the Screen Show and congratulations on on finally getting this project up. 
Um, <laughs> t- tell me, did did you think as you were, you know, preparing for this attempt, and I know there were many attempts, did you think in your heart of hearts that, yes, finally, and did you know somehow that this was going to be the one, this, this would finally be the one? Well, I certainly wanted to believe that. I mean, the reality of it, it was almost not happening because we... I had got Adam Driver on board, and last year, well, no, I've got to go back to 2016. In fact, I signed a contract with uh, this Portuguese producer yesterday, three years ago, <laughs> and, uh, and and off we went. We had we were able to get Adam on board, but at that point, Mike Palin was playing uh, Quixote, and. For four months, we marched forward, or thought we were marching forward, and two months before we were to start shooting, all the actors were in cars, on planes, heading to Lisbon, uh, in Portugal, to do our first read-through, and that producer pulled the plug that day, and it was over. And, And that was like a nightmare, because to lose Adam would mean there was no way we could make the movie. He was the bankable element. And we didn't get going again until April the following year. And by then, Mike Palin had become so frustrated with dealing with this particular producer that he said, bye-bye, I'm not sticking around, which allowed Jonathan Price, who had been waiting 15 years to play the part, to step into the void and... We ended up with this incredible cast, you know, with Adam and Jonathan. Well, Jonathan's, be Jonathan's fantastic in it, and of course, he wasn't old enough before, but he, exactly. he had aged. He had matured into the role as they. Uh, I know. Like the fine <laughs> we all aged into this. I wasn't old enough to direct it back in two thousand. Also, <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a little bit how you feel about it? I mean, uh, clearly, if you'd made this. All those years ago, you know, um, at any time in in the past, you know, decades when you were trying to get it up, it would have been a different film. How yeah. is it? How is it uniquely representative or reflective of you now? Do you think? Well, it was actually interesting. The first couple of weeks of shooting, I was so uncertain about whether I knew what I was doing anymore. <laughs> I kind, of, I was a bit overwhelmed by the pressure of all. The, the people who had been waiting also for years to see this movie, I was the weight of their expectations and their imagined versions of what the film might be was making life really difficult for me at the start. But eventually, just the business of getting through a day takes over and you're back into the rhythm. I think what pleased me is that the end, the result of the film doesn't seem to have any scars or negative scars from the long gestation period, nor does it feel like it's been directed by an old fart. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, I mean, it does in in some ways deal with, I don't know, themes that in some ways you can see throughout your career. I mean, this idea of the character who is a dreamer against all odds is something that recurs. And, yep. you know, you think of yeah. a film like The Fisher King, for example. Um, but then yep. it's also a film with some contemporary resonances. In particular, I was kind of interested by this notion that um, the film business is this very corrosive world, or it's viewed <laughs> as a very corrosive world. Do you view it as a very corrosive world? Well, it's well, there's several things. I mean, I, there's a lot of directors I knew who had begun and they were really talented, who were lured away from filmmaking, which is very difficult, and they ended up doing commercials, making a lot of money and basically wasting their talents as far as I was concerned. So that was one aspect. That was definitely the Toby situation. How can we reclaim this man's uh, betrayal? Uh, how, do, how Do we punish him enough so he... he his punishing for his betrayal of his talent. And the other side was was basically going back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail when we made uh, the film in this little Scottish village. And the effect, us being up there and working with people, having them work as extras and characters in the film, what it did to their lives. I mean, we finished, went back to London, a lot of people followed. A lot of people wanted to make it in films and some might have I 
probably don't think they did, though, and maybe it ruined their lives. I know a lot of marriages broke up over our time in Scotland. <laughs> so I thought, let's, let's incorporate that into the film as well. But it's an interesting portrait of the industry in which you work and in which you indeed have had a lot of success and have excelled artistically. I mean, how have you managed not to sort of be destroyed by it? If, if your view of the industry is as one with teeth and very sharp teeth, how have you sort of yeah. gotten away with it? What, what does it require in terms of character or is it self-belief? <sighs> is it keeping sane? No, I think it's a combination with thick skin and actually being slightly mad uh, helps enormously to have no real sense of the limitations of reality is, I think, a key, at least has been for me. Yeah, well, this is interesting. I mean, I, I think I've read somewhere, well, I have read somewhere you're talking about um, Fellini's Eight and a Half as being one of your favorite films about directing. Yes. And yeah. you talking about, and you were quoted as saying, you, you you wonder if films need directors at all. What they actually need are people pretending to be, to perform the role of a director. In other uh, words, pretending to yes. sort of be there and be the authority, but really who knows, you know, what does the director know sort of thing. I mean, how authority, how sort of sure of yourself do you feel on set in, in, in the sort of um, role of a director? I, I don't. I just, I'm... I, I do. Uh, part of the time I am playing the part of a director who apparently knows what he wants, but that's only part of the time. I, I know what I like is probably more to the point. If I've assembled the right group of people, actors, technicians, designers, cameramen, if they're the right group of people, they will pull me through all the days I'm lost and not knowing what I really want. But I do know what I don't like and I know what I like. And that's kind of the role of the director, I suppose, in the end, to say, mm, no, I think, let's do another one of those. I don't think we quite got it. And if they're lucky, I'm able to explain what I thought was wrong. Most of the time, I just say, let's just do another one and, and count, uh, count that they will do something different that might be what I'm really looking for. Another Actually, I mean, the point is I want to give everybody involved in the process the sense that they are making the movie just as much as I am. We're all in together trying to work our way through this thing. And that's, that's why, and that's the joy of it, frankly. Uh, I'm just the guy that gets to say no. And what about when things aren't going well, though, and things like, you know, there are flash floods or or... or you know, actors die, uh, as as happened, yeah. uh, unfortunately, with, you know, um, Heath Ledger. You know, terrible things happen and befall these projects. How do you maintain your belief in the project and your belief that you can actually continue through? I really don't know. I really don't know. Normally, it's about, I don't know if I do believe. It's just that so many intelligent, reasonable people tell me to stop. And I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and that just pushes me forward, even if I'm not certain. I think like the case of something like Heath dying, which was one of the most painful moments ever in my life. Um, it was my daughter and my cinematographer, Nicola Pecorini, who I just said, I'm going home. It's over. I can't. I can't there's no way we can finish this film. And they said, no, you've got to come up with a solution. And they just kept beating me up until I said, and they said, well, you got to recast the part. And I said, there's no one actor that can do what Heath was capable of doing. And then just out of sheer frustration with having to listen to them after day after day, I said, all right, let's get three actors to play the character. And, and then off we went. Yeah. Uh, it's like that. I, I, I mean, I'm lucky to surround myself with people that really care about the projects we're doing, and they have support that makes it possible to continue. We're talking there, of course, about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and I'm yep. talking to uh, the great Terry Gilliam about his new film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Um, the, something I, that struck me about this film, and and I, I gather this is partly your interest in history and the history of this part of the world was that there is a theme running through this film of the Arab influence on this part of the world, which is Spain, of course. And, yeah. and that links in nicely to um, a few moments where you reference a kind of panic 
um, that is very recognisable uh, for contemporary audiences, of course. Panic around yeah. Arabs and panic around uh, the Islamic faith and so forth. So tell me a little yeah. bit about that, 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 that sort of um, well, exploration. Well, it's partly because Cervantes, in his novel of Quixote, the Islamic world is very much part of it. It's not romanticized, but it's 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 appreciated and honored, and it's and it's a, a texture that is very much part of the Quixote tales. I mean, this is having been written by a man who is in uh, uh, a Tunisian prison, uh, a Muslim prison, for quite a while, um, but he respected the culture, and I thought, well, we've got to have that in our modern version of this. So it goes from respect for the culture and or just knee-jerk panic when you see some bearded women <laughs> or, or people that look like terrorists. And I just wanted to, to deal with that. And again, Quixote, um, at one point when they, he thinks he far, has found this uh, ancient lost kingdom, Arab, one of the last Moorish kingdom, uh, kingdoms in Spain, and he's talking about sheep, and he's describing them as the the wise men in their white robes with their heads bowed to Allah. And that's, and you know, some people could say that, what an offensive thing to say. But the point is, when Toby says, they're just sheep, and, and Coyote says, show some respect, bow your head. What are you, you peasant fool? And so we're trying to deal with it, getting laughs on one side, and yet knee-jerk reactions from people in other parts of the film. Yeah. Because it's an interesting time to be telling stories about dreamers because in a way I think that this is a time of dreamers who are also in power and in some cases their <laughs> dreams aren't very nice, I think a lot of people might say. You don't want to name names, do you? Yeah, I don't want to name names. You do in the film though, don't you? I mean, t- No, I mean there's dreams of babies and then there's dreams of adults who behave like babies. <laughs> And dreams of babies I'm all for, but not when you're president of the United States and you're acting like a two-year-old child, petulant, uh, egomaniacal, narcissistic, you know, and uh, they're taking my toys away and I'm going, to, I'm going to get what I want. That's pathetic. And unfortunately, Pandora's box has been opened, you know, a couple of years ago, and it seems to be everywhere, whether it's... Uh, the Donald in America, whether it's Brexit in in the UK, there's just madness afoot right now. You you must think it's it, it almost seems like uh, a Terry Gilliam film at times. The, the t- <laughs> well, people keep saying you got to do something about this. You know, make jokes. I said it's beyond funny. You can't be funny about it. This is when when the real world becomes more bizarre and and then satire can can produce and more dangerous is the problem uh, i want to go back to your your style especially the use of surrealism and metaphor in in your yeah. films and you know anyone with even a passing sort of knowledge of your films might think that at some point in your life you'd you'd experimented a lot with hallucinogenics or something but i i mean of course i've read that you no i aren't never a, did aren't a big I... drug taker or ne- and never have been no yeah. At the end of Fear and Loathing, that was the one thing I said when I finished the film, I'm going to take some acid. I've never done it. I, as if my dreams keep diminishing as they seem to these days, I may have to turn to acid and see what happens. <laughs> I just, I tend to dream. My dreams are sort of waking dreams. I, I really look at the world, what I see in front of me, and imagine it being something that it isn't. That, that happens more than the dreams at night, because the dreams at night don't seem to stick with me. I can't remember them clearly enough. You've spoken about uh, being heavily influenced by radio growing up, but also by comics, of course. Yep. And and again, it does remind me of Fellini, uh, who was, of course, a, a drew comics before he became a filmmaker as well. Is I identify some... with him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. His films just had a huge effect on me, he, the way he played with what cinema was. And I used to think he was a, you know, a great fantasist until I first went to Rome. And I realized he was actually a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> what he, all those people in his film are on the streets. It's just that we, normal people, don't see it until 
they're put onto the big silver screen, and then we our eyes are opened, and we can see them in the real world. I think that's, to me, the function of cinema in many ways. It's the function of art, but cinema being what it is, is even more important in encouraging people to see things that are out there in the real world. So I put things that seem to be outrageous up on the screen or something I've invented. Most things I put up there are things I've actually seen, and I just twist them a little bit so that maybe people will learn to keep their eyes open when they walk around the streets of wherever they live. There's magic everywhere out there. Terry Gilliam, it's been an absolute pleasure and honour to uh, to speak to you. Good luck with the film in its release in uh, Australia. Thank you. I mean, it's, what, is it the 11th it opens, I think? Yeah. Yes. Well, good luck to you, people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here in London where it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Gilliam there, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, is out now. And speaking of films that take a hallucinatory lens to current issues, it would make a good double bill, actually, with the German film Transit, which screens in a handful of cinemas around the country from this week. In fact, in Melbourne, it screens as part of a retrospective uh, dedicated to the German filmmaker Christian Petzold. Now, Petzold takes uh, Anna Seeger's 1942 novel of the same name about refugees trying to escape the Nazis and sets it in contemporary Marseille. It's a thriller premise with a languid and dreamy execution about a man who assumes the identity of a dead writer while waiting to get the papers in order to ship out, and he falls for the writer's estranged wife. Now, Petzold is exploring a similar theme to the one he did in his previous film, Phoenix, which was about a woman who returns from a concentration camp having undergone plastic surgery and his and her husband doesn't recognise her. This is a more abstract work, I feel, and, and a very enigmatic film. It's a film about waiting. It's set in cramped cafes, narrow streets and crowded embassy offices. But beneath the surface, a grinding tension builds. I can't say I was completely convinced by Petzold's decision, though, to cast uh, white actors in the lead roles, which is faithful to the original book, of course, set in World War II, and yet populate the background of this film with contemporary refugees, many from the Middle East and Northern Africa. For many critics, this casting decision seems to work perfectly well and reflects the meld of the two time periods, the World War II text and the contemporary setting. I think it might have been a stronger decision to cast brown actors in the leads as well. That problem with it aside, uh, Transit is a really beautiful mystery film that I think will reward a patient viewer. Check your guides, uh, as I said, only in a few cinemas nationwide. You're with The Screen Show on RN. I'm Jason DeRosso. Let's hear more music from The Man Who Killed Don Quixote before heading to the small screen. And it's time to welcome to the show to give her unique perspective on small screen matters, our resident TV critic here, Lauren Carroll-Harris. Hey, Jason. Morning. Now, a couple of months back, we shouted out briefly to the US teen comedy Pen15, you have spoken to the creators, Mm. Anna Conkle and Maya Erskine, the two outsiders and best friends who uh, play themselves as 13-year-olds entering seventh grade in the year 2000. Yeah, it's going to be the best year ever, they believe. Uh, And it's not just a gimmick that they, uh, you know, the lead writers and actors playing themselves as, as their own teen selves, while all the other teens around them are played by real teens. I think in the show, which is hilarious, the characters of Maya and Anna are just beautifully weird units. They're wildly charismatic in their own way. And they're also really compelling actors when they're in a more serious register as well. They're the kind of bullied kids who try and fail to bully other kids back. (laughs) So they're not at all clean-cut characters. Here's an instance of where these really spiky, uncomfortably funny, perverse, but I think quite sweet experiences are mined um, for lols. And it's when some of the boys at at lunch in the cafeteria confront them about a very childlike activity that they're still clinging on to. Why do you have dolls? We don't. Do you this? 
Eat that. That's that, not a doll. That, no. That's an investment from eBay. Yeah. It looks like a doll. You're playing with them tonight and everyone knows it, okay? Okay, Gabe, like what? What are you, the smartest man on the living earth? Yes, we are playing with them because they're collector items, so hey, okay? Collector's item means that you just kind of put them on display. Okay. Lady, you're 13. And? And you're still playing with dolls? Um... I saw you with the G.I. Joe last week. They're ripped, okay? Okay, but you're admitting that you play with them. I have judges, but I don't play with them. Oh, oh, my, God. oh my God. I'm Sam. I don't think I play with G.I. Joes. I, I play with dolls. dolls. Shut up. I my name play. is Sam. I play with dolls. My name is Sam. Sam, Sam, I play with dolls. Dolls. Shut up. I play with dolls. Shut up. Hey, everybody. Oh, my God. What's in that box, Maya and Anna? Are you guys playing with dolls? Maya and Anna have a box full of dolls that they're playing with tonight. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they are. <laughs> oh bless! I think the humor really soars when it digs into those very uh, those moments of discomfort. Yeah, and and the the humor of teen humiliation, which you know is a very distinct subset on the spectrum of humiliation. It's not just embarrassment because whether we're the cool kid or the naughty kid, that experience stays with us into our adulthood. And I think the show knows that. So there is a lot of adolescent mortification and these Y two K era throwbacks. Um, but it's not just cargo pants and halter tops. It's so much more than nostalgia and cringe humour because the jokes are never at the expense of the young people. It's easy to say this show is like Sex Education on Netflix, another teen show, but because it is such a cathartic devotional to friendship, I see it more on the same spectrum as Broad City or, or Grace and Frankly, mm. Frankie about you know how letting your freaky nature show can, can really yes. be a form of freedom and sadness can lead to bonding and growth. So when I spoke to IRL, uh, Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, I asked them about this weird thing they've done, which is make and promote a show based on the traumas that seared their adolescences? I don't know. I mean, we we started this process maybe six years ago. So the, the landscape, at least over here in the US, for telling the story of, you know, kind of between childhood and teenhood, that little in-between area wasn't happening that much, especially in television and the R-rated kind of real version of, of what it was like. So, but it does seem like there's something about right now where it's resonating with people. And certainly, you know, we've always been interested in high school and, you know, it, it's a time of firsts and you're like, everything is more extreme feeling. But, and I think that middle school is the further exaggerated, like aspect of that, being that you're barely capable to deal with the things that you're being handed, but you're <laughs> pretending that you can handle it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think um, you're and dead things right. are far more traumatic. Yeah, I think at that at that age. Yeah. I also think that as adults, we we become really desensitized. You know, we have to switch ourselves off a little bit just to to mm -hmm. get through life. And there is something really beautiful and therapeutic to returning to this really vivid um, mm. age where where life is so switched on and so emotional. Was that something that you were aware of, um, Maya? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was as we were writing it, but as soon as we were performing it, it, it all came <laughs> screaming back into my head of how much how much pain you're in and how you, you don't really know, you know, there's a scene where I scream at my dad while he's trying to help me with drums. And, and on the surface, it's, you know, this whiny brat that just is screaming at her dad to, to not tell her how to play her drums. But really beneath that, I learned sort of just even recently, really, um, that, I was really crying for my dad to love me or pay attention to me that, you know, that there's all these really deep emotions that uh, as a 13 year old, and even now we're all going through, but it comes out in really extreme ways at the time. And you might not be able to grasp what it's about or what it means. Um, but so when people sort of talk about 13 year olds as, you know, Oh, it's so dramatic. Oh, it's just like, an opera they're not really you know they're just crying and they're hormonal and it's like yeah there are a lot of hormones going on but you know they're people and they're going through real emotions for real things that are happening to them um and so it's very 
it was really incredibly cathartic to be able to ugly sob, I guess you could say, or, you know, be incredibly happy that your best friend is sleeping over and just the pure (laughs) joy that comes with that. I mean, it's such highs and such lows. And you're right that I think as adults, we learn to sort of tamper those and push it down because you don't want to be out on the street, you know, bawling. It does seem like at the moment, there's this wave of teen shows where actually they're not so much aimed at, at actual teens, but at older adults, looking back with mixed mm-hmm. feelings and, and taking young people's emotional problems really seriously. Was that something that you were conscious of? And, and also, do you know who's watching your show, Anna? Um, that's such a good question. I mean, I know that there are some people, and we're not necessarily recommending this, but parents that are watching with their kids. Oh, wow. Which I found really interesting and as an instruction guide for (laughs) (laughs) I know I don't know I don't know I mean the positive that I know that has come out of it because I didn't get to talk to them a lot about it but was conversations of kids opening up I, I think one one daughter said that's not what it's really like. It's way, like in terms of like what sexual things that Anna and Maya are doing in there that I was like, oh, it's way worse <laughs> or something. <laughs> it and is, it, yeah. Yeah, and then it started that conversation with parent and kid is pretty cool, but definitely not something I was anticipating, definitely not the goal. I mean, I, I think that the only goal was to honestly look at the minutiae of the feelings that we had at that age. And it's true that it's sort of like content about kids that sort of um, neither here nor there is kind of can be undercutting their emotional ability, but it was more just knowing me as a kid, Mm -hmm. my own feelings, they didn't stop at us, you know, a simple ending. If anything, they were kind of more perverse or twisted or whatever, because I didn't have any of the adult coping mechanisms that were like, your mind needs to stop there else you won't go to sleep and you need to go to your job in the morning. You know, it's like you, you don't have, right. have those beginning and ends and you can just spiral to anywhere. And it was complex. So we wanted to show that, I guess. Oh, yeah. And definitely that idea of not having adult coping mechanisms comes through really strongly. I mean, I was thinking that a lot of the logic of your humor and these scenes that you create, these dramatic situations is that you put your characters yourselves into these situations where they're pushed right up against their own immaturity, like in the cafeteria when the boys realize that Maya and Anna, you know, still play with dolls. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this idea of the comedy of immaturity. Was that a guiding logic when you were writing? Anna? It wasn't necessarily immaturity, at least that we were talking about in the writer's room. It was more um, delusion that comes with that <laughs> yes. age or not having the tools to answer properly. So you're searching for an answer that you're never going to find, but you're going to pretend that you found the answer. And hopefully they feel insulted by that, but everybody else can see that you're just failing. You know, that's pretty funny to us. And I think that even as adults, we relate to that feeling of, I'm clearly struggling right now, but I'm going to pretend I'm not. And there's something kind of sad and funny about that intrinsically. I don't know. What do you think, Maya? Yeah, I agree with that. And also I think part of the humor, you know, like from that scene specifically is that, you know, Maya and Anna are at the bottom of the totem pole in this, in this social ladder of this school. And yet (laughs) when they get a chance to put down other people, it's, you know, they, even though they're, because they're embarrassed about their own selves, they will jump at it. So I think there's some humor to mine from that of seeing the bullied sort of bully back to the boys um, and give them a taste of their own medicine. Um, And then seeing adults do it to kids is on a, probably adds another level of humor, even though you're trying to, uh, believe that we are kids in this story. Um, And I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, intention, at least with wanting to play, I wouldn't say this in a humor way, but just wanting to play with the theme of childhood versus teendom or just Mm. versus adulthood, like that moment of leaving innocence, you know, these girls, 
they still love playing with dolls, but when you're called out for it, you know, that, that struggle of like, Oh, can I not play with, why can't I play with dolls, but also be interested in sex or, or also, you know, be an adult. Like I, it's that awkward time where it's figuring out when you're ready to let go of playtime and, and toys. And that was really something. And you your flat chest. Yeah. And flat chest and, and <laughs> yeah, down there. Furry everything. <laughs> yeah. You know what else I noticed about your show? Most teen stories work on archetypes, like the cool girl and the mean girl and the mm-hmm. outcast. And even though I, I totally see what you're saying, like the characters Maya and Anna, they're not they're not cool at all and often, mm-hmm. you know, they're a bit petty or unkind, though they're essentially good people. But I really felt that your show's characters seemed mainly free of those categories and cliches mm. of teens. Mm. Um, they just That's seemed nice. like pretty normal, uncategorizable kids. Was that intentional as well, Anna? We talked about not, yes, I guess staying away from the archetypes that we see in movies a lot um, and going kind of to the archetypes of our memories that we found talking to friends and the writer's room that everybody kind of had token people in their memories. And for example, we talked about the cool guy. I mean, this isn't revolutionary, but just him being kind of vanilla, that the guy that I had a huge crush on, I can't tell you a lot about his personality, (laughs) probably because he didn't have to mine one as much as somebody else that isn't leaning on their, their looks. I mean, that's a more cynical view of it, but one way to look at it and maybe, you know, maybe what if that, what if the popular guy only has to say one word here and there to be just fully adored, you know, same with Anna and Maya's character. We wanted characters, we wanted them to feel like we're not, it doesn't have to be a story about the, lowest of the low dweebs and by the way what that really looks like in my memory is not a comedy it's it's being alone and not having a best friend to get through things with and in this case you know we we have found each other and so we're not at the lowest point that we could be and emotionally um, but we have to hold on to each other really hard and we're definitely not popular or close to it. So I think we want to look at the gray areas of people that our memories held. I think yeah. the other thing that your show made me think about as well is that our culture has been so immersed in 80s nostalgia. But for me, as a, a kid who came of age, probably, you know, same same area, same era as you guys did, you know, a millennial, basically. It, it's so great to see the culture move through the 80s and into this like late 90s, early 2000s nostalgia, the TLC tracks, um, <laughs> you know, gel pens mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But it just felt to me like you used all those things, not just for their nostalgic factor. It seemed so keyed into the granular detail, the texture of your life at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, thank you. Um, We, we always described it as wanting to drop into a memory so that it's, we wouldn't, we tried our best to not just take the obvious things that you could look up on probably a Pinterest page of the year 2000. But (laughs) the, the very specific memories that might elicit a big reaction from you that you haven't thought of in years, you know, like we had this weird game called pogs, which we didn't end up including, but there, you know, not everyone remembers what a pog is, but if you did, it hits a special part in your heart. You're just like, okay, I'm back there. And now that's bringing up all these other memories. And then it, it just opens up your brain in a way that is really fun for us. Um, Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, we are fighting against the fact that there's some something very sketch-like about me and Maya being 31 and playing 13-year-old. <laughs> so we are constantly trying to kind of, you know, gritify and make authentic the rest of the world that surrounded us. U.S. comedians and writers and actors Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle are as funny and large-spirited off-screen as they were on. And i got to say, this is a space of U.S. screen culture that Australia hasn't developed in the same way. U.S. shows often depict these spaces where young people are developing their independence and autonomy outside their families or the purview of their teachers. Spaces like locker rooms, school hallways, malls, bleachers, teen bedrooms. And that is an architecture where ideas like confrontation 
exploitation, subversion, the subcultural desire, uh, youth sexuality, or you know, you, you forming your own identity. All these things can be interrogated, and I think, you know, Australian, yeah, like it's just not mythologized, and I honestly think that's a shame because you know. You are your teen, a little bit of your teen self remains, remains within with you. you forever. I will always be that uncool teen girl who saved up twenty four ninety five for a Kmart hoodie with a little fake fur trim. I'll always be that way. And I love that that show looks at that emotional terrain. You, you wear that wardrobe <laughs> well to this very day. <laughs> Thank okay. you. That's a nice Thanks, person um, thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Uh, yeah, Pen15 is streaming on Stan at the moment. I also recommend it. Um, thank you very much, Lauren Carroll Harris. Thanks, Jason. It's the Screen Show's TV critic, Lauren Carroll Harris. You're listening to The Screen Show on RN. Time for the latest arts news now with Claire Nichols. Hi, Claire. Hello, Jason. The nominations have been announced for the Australian Directors Guild Awards. Uh, this is interesting because for the first time, directors for nominated feature films have been split into two categories. So there's films with a budget over $1 million and films with a budget under $1 million. And in that big budget category are Warwick Thornton for Sweet Country, Garth Davis for Mary Magdalene, Joel Edgerton for Boy Erased and Anthony Morass for Hotel Mumbai. All men. Yes. Uh, in the direction of feature films with a budget under $1 million, there is one female nominee, Donna McRae for Lost Gully Road. She's up against Christopher Kay for Just Between Us, Dustin Fennelly for Stray and Jason Perini for Chasing Comets. Comets. Uh, you got any favourites, any picks there, Jason? Um, in the big budget category, I think Warwick Thornton. I mean, they're all talented directors, but I don't think any of the films are or will be their best films, but probably Warwick Thornton for Sweet Country. Okay, well, we'll see if the judges agree on the 6th of May when their winners are 6th announced. 6th of May, okay. And speaking of awards, there's been a rule change at the Emmys. Uh, this is going to affect three TV shows, American Horror Story, The Sinner and American Vandal. And previously, these shows had all been eligible for entry in the limited series category for the Emmy Awards. But from now on, they're going to qualify as regular series instead, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Um, basically, for the last seven years, American Horror Story has competed in the limited series category. That was previously called the miniseries category. And it's done pretty well there, Jason. It's got a host of nominations, a handful of wins, and it's been able to enter that category because it's been in this anthology format. It had no ongoing storylines or characters from season to season, so each season could be entered as a limited series. But in the most recent series, some actors have started to reprise roles they'd previously played, which pushes, pushes them into the drama category, which is a lot more competitive. And, you know, apparently this all came to head uh, because of Big Little Lies back in 2017. That won the Emmy for Limited Series. And I don't know if you remember this, but just after it secured the nomination for Limited Series, HBO came out and said, oh, that's actually likely to be a second season, which means it wouldn't have really been in contention in, contention. in that category yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, staying in America, you've got an update on the college admissions scandal, which yeah. is, just goes on and on. Yeah. I know I know you know this story. 50 people arrested over a $35 million scandal to help wealthy Americans cheat their children's way into elite universities. You'll remember there are a couple of Hollywood actresses that were implicated. Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives and Transamerica. This week, she pleaded guilty to taking part in the scam. She is likely to face some jail time, probably just a matter of months. She's also agreed to pay a $20,000 fine and restitution. And I should note that that's only a bit more than the $15,000 she and her husband, William H. Macy, allegedly paid to have their daughter's answers corrected on a college entrance exam. And this is already having an impact on her career too. Netflix has announced it will delay the release of her latest film, When They See Us, until later this month. Another film, Otherhood, has been pulled from the schedule altogether. Meanwhile, the Full House actress Laurie Loughlin and her fashion designer husband, Mossimo Giannulli, excuse my pronunciation there, have been hit with new charges. They had already been charged with racketeering conspiracy for their alleged role in the scheme. Now they're also facing money laundering charges. And Jason, they could be facing up to 40 years in jail. Mm, that's massive. Okay, finally, Claire, a Grease prequel is in the works. I know you're you're more happy about this than I am, I think. <laughs> Any musical theatre news, I'm happy. I'm going to play you a little bit of music just to set the scene, Jason. Feeling the romance, Jason. You'll probably remember that's the movie from the very start of the film. Danny and mm -hmm. Sandy are frolicking on the beach, falling in love. Yep. And apparently that story is the 
idea behind the new film, Summer Loving, um, about their early romance. Um, John August has been tapped to write the script. I don't know how this one's going to pan out for Paramount. I mean, Grease is a huge title for them. It's still, they re-release it all the time. But Grease 2, you'll remember, Jason, didn't go so well. Mm. So who knows how a Grease prequel will be received. Well, watch this face. Thank you very much, Claire. Uh, it's Claire Nichols there with the Arts News. Actor Geraldine Hakewell came to prominence starring as Chelsea Babbage alongside Rebecca Gibney in Channel 7's hit show Wanted, and more recently she's graced our screens in Ms Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, a companion piece to the ABC's uh, beloved Ms Fisher's Murder Mysteries, in which, uh, well, in this new incarnation by the same creators of the original, Deb Cox and Fiona Eager, uh, she plays the lead role of Peregrine Fisher, a private detective and the niece of Phryne Fisher from the original series. We invited Geraldine in and asked her what films and TV shows inspire her. Warning, there is some strong language in the form of the title of one of her picks. My first choice is a TV miniseries called Patrick Melrose, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's based on a series of books by Edward St. Alban. And I was completely blown away by this show. I just think it's pretty much perfect TV in my eyes. Um, it's basically about a guy who comes from a very abusive family, and this causes him to become an addict later in his life. Each episode, and I think each book, charts a different portion of his life from the 80s till the 2000s. And Hugo Weaving is in it as well, playing Benedict Cumberbatch's father. And it's beautifully written, it's beautifully shot, the acting is superb, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's pretty harrowing, but really, really fantastic. My second pick is a Hungarian film called One Day, and I saw this at the Melbourne Film Festival, I think it was last year. It's by um, a director called Sofia Shilaci, I think I said that right, <laughs> and it's her first feature film, which blows my mind because, again, I think it's pretty much a perfect film. It's so simple. It's about one day in a woman's life and she has three children and she's having a difficult time in her relationship with her husband. But it's shot like the most intense thriller that you've ever seen. It's very emotive. The cinematography is beautiful. The acting is <laughs> so perfect that you couldn't even call it acting. And the performances of the children are so natural. It's hard to believe that <laughs> that it's a film, a narrative film and not a documentary. I was really moved by it. I'm selling the house. What? For how much? You're not selling the house, Mum. Yes, I am. But where are we going to live? Get a good price on this house, my mom. But you're selling our home. Could you at least include me in on the conversation? Let's include you. You left this shithole 18 years ago. Hey, well, it's still my shithole. Stop calling it a shithole. My third choice is a really quirky little series called Fucking Adelaide by Sophie Hyde. Um, who made a feature film called 52 Tuesdays and I think she's one of our most exciting directors and creatives and um, this is a really funny kind of uh, <laughs> bizarre series. If you liked Transparent or Search Party, I think you'd really enjoy this. Each episode's only about 15 minutes, so it's very easy to kind of just binge the whole thing in one go. And each episode focuses on a different member of a fairly dysfunctional but very loving family who live in Adelaide. And I think my favourite thing about it is actually the sound design of all things. They use a lot of the dialogue spoken in the film and mix it to create the soundscape and the soundtrack. It's very funny and really surprising. 
My next choice is an old film that I actually watched again after a very long time um, for research for Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, and it's Charade, the Audrey Hepburn Cary Grant film by Stanley Donan from 1963. And he also directed Singing in the Rain and Funny Face, two other films that I really love. But I think this is a really underrated film and a lot of people describe it as the best film Hitchcock never made. It's a kind of cat and mouse thriller with a big dash of romantic comedy thrown in. The dialogue's really fizzy and there's some great one-liners. It's very witty. Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn are incredibly charming and the costumes are great. The landscape's great. There's a beautiful um, vista at the beginning uh, where they start off in the Alps and they're skiing and the kind of apres ski wear is just fantastic. <laughs> My name is Cormoran Strike. I'm a private investigator. I'm Robin Ellicott. I've always dreamt about a crew like this. So, partners, yeah? The police said suicide, but I think she was murdered. There's someone going through a lot of effort to get inside my head. We have to put them away. Bloody hell. Another series that I've really enjoyed are um, a series of telemovies based on the Cormoran Strike novels by Robert Galbraith, also known as J.K. Rowling. The series is called CB Strike and it stars Tom Burke and Holiday Granger. I loved these books and I was really surprised when I found out it was J.K. Rowling who'd written them and I it made me appreciate her as a writer a lot more because they couldn't be more different from Harry Potter if you tried. <laughs> but the, the series that's been made of the books is really faithful, really well cast. Uh, it really captures the feeling of London, the relationship between the two protagonists, and uh, they're just fantastic, complex, but really engaging murder mysteries. Actor Geraldine Hakewill joining us for our Top Shelf segment. You can catch Geraldine in Ms. Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries on 7 Plus. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Screen Show. Remember, you can track down both myself, Jason DeRosso, and Lauren Carroll Harris on social. We're both on Twitter. And uh, you can hear us same place, same time next week, online or on air. That's The Screen Show. Let's go out now with some more of that wonderful music from the soundtrack of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. This is music composed by Roque Baños. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.